Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Sarah Churchwell on Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells in her new book, The Wrath to Come. Sarah Churchwell is Professorial Fellow in American Literature and Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. An American living in London, she is the author of Behold America, a History of America First and the American Dream, Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby, and The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe. Her journalism has been published widely, included in the New York Review of Books, The Guardian, New Statesman and Financial Times, and she contributes frequently to broadcast media on both sides of the Atlantic. She was co-winner of the 2015 Eccles British Library Writers Award and longlisted for the 2021 Orwell Prize for Journalism. Today we're going to be talking about Sarah's latest book, which is The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. Sarah, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. So the last time we spoke, just before the pandemic, if I remember rightly, obviously during Trump's reign, but obviously before the January 6th stuff, and we talked about Behold America, and that book talked about various American myths like the American Dream, and this book at its centre, sort of starts off with a uh, American dream, which is the idea of the lost cause, which I'm going to get you to tell us what that is. <laughs> but in like 10 words or less or something. Um, yeah, the lost cause is, it's a propaganda uh, campaign that was developed by apologists for the American South after the Civil War. And basically, it's a big project in revisionist history. And after they lost the Civil War, they decided to rewrite the whole conflict and the reasons for it and began denying that that the Civil War was fought over slavery. And they began denying that slavery had been that bad anyway. And they insisted that it was actually without too much passage of time, they started insisting that it was actually that the North had invaded them. And so basically, they just kept kind of spinning lies and propaganda to deny the fundamental facts of the Civil War, which were that the South had seceded from the Union in order to both perpetuate and they wanted, crucially, to expand slavery as America expanded westward across the continent. That was really what the conflict was over. 
so there's lots and lots and lots of very clear documentary evidence from the speeches and the debates at the time. It was definitely over slavery. This is not in any question, but they immediately began rewriting history. And the Lost Cause became the shorthand for this romantic, mythical version of the antebellum South that said that slavery was beautiful. It was actually not even slavery. It was voluntary servitude. It was welcomed by the enslaved in any way they deserved it. And they were better off anyway. And white enslavers were benevolent and paternalistic. And it was all very, very gentle. And then the North basically out of spite came in and ruined everything. And that's the idea of the lost cause. And if it sounds really silly now, the problem is that that story took powerful hold of the American imagination. And really what my book is about is the kind of legacy of that story. He described that as a sort of propaganda, and that's obviously true, but also it very specifically comes from ideas that were current at the time in what might seem like completely unrelated books and stories. So tell us where some of that idea of the Romantic South came from. Yeah. So any any successful propaganda campaign, right, is going to tap into stories that people like. You're rarely going to be able to make one up out of out of whole cloth and push it on people. It's, go, it's going to pick up on things they already believe or images they already hold dear or, you know, stories that they're already committed to. And what happens with the lost cause is it becomes this kind of amalgam of a bunch of favorite myths and stories of the American South. One of the most important influences on this kind of melange of, of mythologies that converged into the lost cause, which I talk about in some detail in the book, although there's actually a lot more to be said about it, and the whole books have been written on the topic, which is the influence of Sir Walter Scott, who was wildly popular um, across the United States, actually, not just um, in the South, but he was particularly popular in the South. And basically, a lot of his medievalism and his romantic imagery and, um, and a lot of his thematic ideas got adopted and adapted by the South. And they basically, uh, you know, kind of uh, appropriated those ideas and built their own myths um, using some of the like apparatus of his storytelling. So there are lots of examples of that, but the most obvious one, the most familiar one is that the the Ku Klux Klan, which of course um, everybody has heard of, although not, most people probably don't realize how very uh, horrific the Klan actually was. I think some people today think it was kind of comical. It wasn't comical at all. It was horrifying. And again, something I go into in some detail in the book. But if you think about the Ku Klux Klan, of course it's spelled with a K, but it's a Klan. And they got the idea of the romantic clan from Scott. And of course, the, the South was, much of the, the rural South was settled by people of, of Scottish and Irish ancestry. And so Scott's story of the Highland stories, I should say, rather, um, his romantic stories of the Highlanders and the brave Scottish living free resonated and glorified the individual and cultural past of these people. So they felt like they were like Scott's clansmen and, and they were his direct inheritors. And then if, if you think about the fact that the, if you've got a clan, you would expect it to be populated by like maybe chieftains, I guess, or warriors. I mean, I don't, you know, whoever you would expect to see in a clan, but the clan in America is made up of knights. Well, why are there knights in a clan? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's actually a mashup. It's an, it's an actual just mashup of Scott's imagery from Ivanhoe and, and novels like that about medieval knights and the round table and of the clan. And basically they just like have this hodgepodge of imagery from Scott that they mashed up. But again, it sounds kind of comical. And if the real world consequences had been so serious, it might be funny. 
But of course, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan actually borrowed all of this imagery in order to veil with these kind of mystical trappings what was actually a completely homicidal project to destroy any possibility of Black people achieving political and economic equality in the American South after the war. So Gone with the Wind, obviously, this is, I don't know how many, 70 years later after, after you know, yeah. the, um, the, the war and the reconstruction. First of all, the novel by um, Margaret Mitchell. So tell us something about who Margaret Mitchell was and how she fitted into this yeah. sort of ideology. Right. So basically, this kind of mythology that I'm telling takes hold over the, the second half of the 19th century. So the Civil War was fought 1861 to 1865. And then this mythology of the lost cause starts to develop in 1866. People start to publish books about it, publish newspaper stories, and that's how it starts to take hold. And then the Klan develops at that time in 1860, end of 1865, 1866, and gains power through the early 1870s. The lost cause is also justifying all of this political violence and what would become Jim Crow, the foundations of Jim Crow segregation, which were being laid at the same time. And that's the project that goes on through the end of the 19th century including most famously with the Supreme Court decision in 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson, which held that separate could be equal. And that was what enshrined Jim Crow segregation in American law until it was disbanded uh, six years later by, uh, so 70 years later by um, the Civil Rights Act under Lyndon Johnson. And so that very infamous Supreme Court decision, we have a, a history of infamous Supreme Court decisions, and that's not the one on everybody's minds at the moment, but a really important one. And that Plessy v. Ferguson separate but equal decision was made four years before Margaret Mitchell was born. She was born in 1900 to a family that had been enslavers. Her grandmother had enslaved, uh, had grown up on a, on a fairly wealthy plantation. Her father was an Irish immigrant. And Margaret Mitchell's uh, grandmother was very much the model for Scarlett O'Hara, the heroine or if you like anti-heroine of Gone with the Wind. And her grandmother survived the siege of Atlanta, the burning of Atlanta, when Sherman's army marched across the South to the sea uh, in his famous scorched earth campaign. And so Margaret Mitchell grew up with stories that absolutely glorified the old South with a grandmother who was bitterly determined to regain the property, the wealth and the power that she had lost in her mind um, to the Yankees who showed her daughter, I mean, sorry, her granddaughter, Margaret, the path of the Yankees to the sea and how she, you know, where she herself lives. So this was really living history for Margaret Mitchell and, and her generation. And they grew up at the time in the early um, decades of the 20th century as the statues to the Confederacy and to white supremacism that are now the subject of such controversy were going up. So sometimes people think they went up in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War in the 1860s and 1870s. They began to, there were a few here and there, but the real project to building this kind of monument to white supremacism across the United States really took hold just as Margaret Mitchell was growing up. So she grew up steeped in these stories that all defended the South, insisted that slavery was completely fine, the South was innocent, the North was to blame, and was this massive act of self-justification. And the important thing to say that is, is also, and then I'll, I'll stop, it's such a big and complicated history, but this is really, really important, is that it was also at this point that this stopped being a defense of Southern life and Southern white supremacism and Southern ideas about the Civil War, and they began to be adopted by the North as well. So instead of the division continuing, as you might expect that the North would continue to say, well, hang on, we fought a war over this, and 
we completely dispute your account of what's happening here. The White North basically accepted it and it was transmitted through popular culture, which is why stories like the history of Walter Scott and his movement through the US are important to the story that I'm telling in this book, because part of my story is about how popular culture does that work of myth-making for us. And it spread, therefore, not just from justifications by people who had themselves enslaved people and therefore had the most vested interest possible in defending their position to a couple of generations later, people in the white North basically accepting that slavery hadn't been that bad because it was just easier for all white people in America to believe that and to not acknowledge the ways in which even white people in the North were benefiting directly from the structures of Jim Crow segregation and racial inequality that were embedded deeper and deeper into the country at that point. So I watched the film of Gone with the Wind again while reading this book, and I haven't seen it for, I don't know, probably 30 years. And it is a really tough watch. I mean, it even it comes with a warning at the beginning of it. And it's a hard watch, a lot harder than I, than I remember it from when I watched it when I was like a teenager. But apparently the book is even worse. They tone it down quite a lot in the film. So how is the book worse? Oh, the book is worse in almost every imaginable way. Um, the, the film is comparatively sympathetic to Black people, not least, as I say in the book, because the performances by the Black actors bring these one-dimensional stereotypes to life. And so the legendary performances by Hattie McDaniel, the more complicated and problematic performance by Butterfly McQueen, plays Prissy, and then the other Black actors, although they get, they're mostly male Black actors, there are two important parts given to Black women, and then there are secondary Black, there's secondary Black male cast. They're all wonderful actors and terrific performers, and they humanize these very flat stereotypes that Mitchell wrote about and invest them with much more wisdom So, so and, and dignity, really. So Hattie McDaniel's performance um, famously uh, made her the first African-American actor to win an Academy Award. She won Best Supporting Actress for this performance. Although, as I note in the book, she won it at a segregated ceremony in Los Angeles. The producer, David O'Selznick, had to put the screens for her to attend and she had to sit at a separate table from the rest of the white cast. So the idea, the, the, you know, the night that she won her Oscar, right? So the idea that segregation was just a problem in the South is belied by that story alone, right? So what happens, uh, what well, the, the problems in the book begin with the fact that that Mitchell, uh, I think the problems for contemporary readers with the book begin with the fact that Mitchell liberally uses the N-word. She uses it over 100 times across the book, and, and she uses it against Black characters, right? So there are other books, notably Huck Finn, where Mark Twain uses the N-word against racism. He uses it to expose the racism of white Southerners and to allow Huck Finn, his crisis of conscience and realizing that the enslaved Jim is more than that racial slur. But Margaret Mitchell doesn't think that those characters are more than that racial slur. She just doesn't see it. And um, her, her blinders were immense. So she constantly compares Black people to animals um, in the most offensive terms possible. They're often just compared to apes and monkeys. They're described as savages. They're described as darkies. She uses uh, all kinds of racial categories. One of the things that I established going through the book, you know, it's a thousand page novel, but computers let you track certain kinds of things that the naked eye, you can be completely confident that you haven't missed anything. But I've gone through it pretty surgically, and I'm really confident that there is not a single point in this 1,037-page novel in which Margaret Mitchell describes Black Americans as human beings. She never uses the word man, the word woman, the word person, the word people, the word human. 
none of those words are used to describe black people. They are only described in racial categories. And indeed, many times she differentiates humans from black people. So she says things like, is the army so short of men that it has to use? And then she uses the offensive darkies, right? The army so short of men that it has to use darkies because darkies aren't men. So there's that kind of racist thinking and racist language all the way through it. But so I think, you know, it's important for, for modern readers to understand that and to go into it realizing that. But one of the things I say early on in the book is that, you know, I'm not here to announce the revelation that Gone with the Wind is racist, right? I mean, like, pretty sure most people are aware of that. And it really wasn't worth my writing a book to, you know, breaking news to let everybody know about that. But what I really wanted to do was to examine and try to understand what the racism is for and how it works and the ways in which it contributes to stories about white power, white martyrdom, white victimhood that I think do draw a, if not straight line, a connected line. It's a wavering and erratic line, but it is a connected line to the debates and discussions that, and, and divisions that we're seeing today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sarah Churchwell and we're talking about her new book, The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. And just staying with the film of Gone with the Wind for a moment, Sarah, there's a scene in the book where you describe the premiere of the film that was held in Atlanta. And I will just let you take up that story because there's some <laughs> amazing revelations there. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. A lot of reviews have picked up on it. So I, I think I should say for the record that I'm not the person who uncovered this detail, but I am I am sharing it. It's been shared more than once. So it wasn't like one particular person who's credited with this, but it has been noted in the past. But so what happened was there was a, um, a performance was held the night before the big premiere and the white cast and all of the white dignitaries were 
uh, invited to um, attend this kind of gala ball, and and they brought in the church choir, the children's church choir from the um, it's, it's the uh, Ebenezer um, Baptist uh, Gospel Choir, but it was a children's choir, and they dressed these black children in 1939 as young slaves. So they put them in slave costumes and they put them against a, a backdrop of a romantic looking plantation um, on stage, right? And so behind them is this beautiful, like a vista, like you'd see in the film of Gone with the Wind. And it all looks romantic and lovely in Rolling Hills. And then they dress these small black children in 1939 as slaves and um, and had them sing gospel songs that it was reported moved the white cast to tears. And the fact is, is that the pastor of that church at the time was Martin Luther King Sr. And his 10-year-old son, Martin Luther King Jr., was one of the children singing in the choir dressed as a slave in 1939. And it's those kinds of moments where Hattie McDaniel receiving the first Oscar for an African-American at a time when the makers of this film and the um, publishers and author of this story were insisting that slavery had had no bad consequences for American society whatsoever, literally at the same time that the Black cast performing in this film couldn't attend the same award ceremony, literally at the same time that Black children were being dressed up in cosplay as slaves for the amusement of, of white people, and not just for the amusement, of course, for the, the reinforcement of their sense of their own power and their own superiority to allow them to kind of glorify this um, and, and imaginatively um, relive this kind of lost era of white supremacism and that one of the children there yeah was Martin Luther King Jr. who was 10 years old at the time and of course one of the things that I'm trying to do in the story is to remind everybody of how recent this history is so there's Martin Luther King he's 10 in 1939 and he was dead in 30 years you know it's only 30 years later that you know 20 years later he's fighting for civil rights and um, and 10 years after that assassinated for doing so. And, and it's that story it's th that I'm trying to tell here is, is how Gone with the Wind, how it thematically pulls together, it resonates in so many ways with what's happening now. I mean, there have been some accounts in my book that claim that I'm trying to say that Gone with the Wind caused what's happening in America right now. And I just like to say again, for the record, I mean, that would be an asinine thing to say. Of course, I'm not saying that. I think I make pretty clear in the book that that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that Gone with the Wind captures all of this stuff. It helps us see the connections and the thematic links. And it gives us a kind of one repository of where all of this stuff is happening. And if we trace it in and out, we start to understand what those connections look like. And following Martin Luther King Jr., for example, in and out of this story is just one way of doing that. Certainly not saying that Gone with the Wind, you know, caused the assassination of Martin Luther King. I mean, what imbecilic thing that would be to say. But the way in which he gets caught up in this story is totally emblematic of what's happening in America, uh, in American politics throughout the 20th century and how it's taken us to where we are now. Just one more thing about the film itself, and then we'll look at some of the, uh, the more contemporary issues that, um, that Gone with the Wind caused. Um, so... <laughs> it didn't cause them! <laughs> <laughs> so, again, an often refrain that you will hear when anybody discusses anything from the past is that, you know, times were different then. Obviously, Gone with the Wind, the book and the film were like racist and not up to today's standards, but, you know, it was a different time. But you talk in the book, of course, again, about both at the time of the publication of the book and its reception and the film, there was constant dialogue going on around it, both with the studio, with the black actors that played those parts that you talked about, 
and also other black writers that were contemporary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so it's again, it's far too easy and reductive to just be like, oh, it was all racist then everybody was fine with it. No, they weren't. That's how civil rights came about because of black activists fighting against this garbage the whole time it was happening. And so to say it was just fine then is to erase uh, a whole history of contest and activism. And it reconnects to part of the lost cause myth which said that Black people were emancipated, they were passively emancipated and had nothing to do with their own emancipation. And the great Black historian, W.E.B. Du Bois, who published the first great work of African-American revisionist history just the year before Gone Woman came out in 1935 in Black Reconstruction in America, talked about how nonsensical that was and said, you know, this, apparently Black people are the first people, Black Americans are the first people who were ever like passively emancipated and had no hand in their own emancipation. Of course, they were active in it. And his story was about how they were active in the building um, reconstruction in the years after the Civil War. And the response to Gone with the Wind is absolutely emblematic of what Du Bois was talking about, or I, I should say rather our historical memory of the response to Gone with the Wind, because except within the scholarship, in, in our popular stories about Gone with the Wind, that Black resistance and Black activism is, is almost all but forgotten. And so one of the things I really wanted to do was to just make that part of the story that we tell about Gone with the Wind. Again, this is something that scholars have uncovered. I uncovered original stuff too. There's a you know, collective effort here. But again, I don't want to pass myself off as like the first person who noticed this or something far from it. And again, Black scholars have been uncovering this for a long time. But to say this is a story that continues to need to be told. And so exactly as you say, the, the Black writers and the Black cast, they campaigned against the N-word being used in the film. It was originally in the script, and it was thanks to their efforts that it wasn't. In fact, Selznick fought tooth and nail to keep it. He was absolutely determined to keep it in the script. He thought that it added historical verisimilitude, and he couldn't see what the problem was, although all of these Black activists were telling him what the problem was. And they were saying that what the problem is, is that that word, is inextricably entwined with racial violence. And when you use that word, it is a harbinger of racial violence. And one of the things that I show in the book is that that's even true in Margaret Mitchell's story, that every time that Scarlett uses the word, she's fantasizing about racial violence. And although it's a story that insists that white people never harmed Black people, as I say, Scarlett does an awful lot of fantasizing about racial violence for somebody who's never seen racial violence and could never imagine it. She often longs to whip Black people, let's just say. And of course, again, as I say in the book, Black people knew that through the bitterest of experience, they knew that that word was absolutely a, a trigger for racial violence. It both reflected it and gave permission for it. And so one activist said, if you do this, it's going to be, um, Gone with the Wind is going to be an excuse for a lynching holiday. But basically, they were terribly concerned for very good reason that it would launch the same kind of racial violence that the birth of a nation had unleashed 20 years earlier. And they fought really, really hard to keep that from happening. And Selznick resisted as long as he could. And the irony is that eventually the reason that he capitulated was not out of a sense of racial justice um, or because he was really persuaded by the arguments of his Black cast or the Black critics or the, or the people in the NAACP who were writing to him, but because the censorship code, which is called the Hayes Code, also wouldn't let him have Clark Gable say, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn at the end of the film, which he was determined to keep. And eventually it was just a simple trade. He said to the Hayes Code that if he would take, because I should say the Hayes Code also objected to the word, the N-word being used because it was not often used in uh, popular film at the time because it did lead to um, boycotts, because it did lead 
to unrest and indeed outright violence. And so, um, so Selznick uh, did this trade-off with the Hays Code where he said, if you let me keep the dam, I'll get rid of the N-word. And that's why it's not there. So just to finish off then, obviously since Gone with the Wind came out, there was a civil rights movement, we've had a black president, and then suddenly there's a guy, suddenly there's a guy in the Capitol building with a Confederate flag waving it about. How did how did all this manifest itself in the January the 6th insurrection? Well, as you know, that's really where I begin the book, which is if you want to understand the symbolism of that flag flying in the Capitol for the first time, you have to understand the history of the Civil War and its aftermath, and that aftermath that carries through the 20th century. Now, if I was going to tell that whole story in detail, it would have been like a multi-volume project. You know, it would have taken decades to write. So again, that's why I thought that Gone with the Wind would work, would serve to pull together all of these different aspects of the story and help people understand how it had come to this. But basically, it's about the justification of the Confederacy. It's about the whitewashing in every sense of that word of the Confederacy, the insistence that the that a flag that was literally invented as the standard, the battle standard for race-based slavery that was to be flown by an army that went to war to defend race-based slavery, that flag, literally the symbol of white supremacism in America, could ever be deracinated from that context. And it could, it could just become what, it, what it's now described as a benign symbol of Southern heritage. Well, no, it was, it's like, that's like saying that, I mean, it's literally analogous to saying that a swastika can become a benign symbol of German heritage because, hey, you know, we flew it in the 30s and it doesn't mean that anymore, you know, because we don't mean that anymore. Well, you know, it means what it means. And it is as unimaginable that it should be as unimaginable that the Confederate flag defending slavery flew in the capital that fought a bitter war to defeat that side, as it would be to imagine the Nazi flag, you know, flying in the German parliament today. And yet that's what we were looking at. And, and the analogy is a direct one. I'm not saying they're completely, they're obviously not identical circumstances, but the analogy is accurate. And so to understand how that could happen, how that myth-making process came about, that enabled the whitewashing of that symbol. Gone with the Wind is central to that story. And I will say that Gone with the Wind had a lot to do with enabling that to happen. That's the one thing that I'll say that Gone with the Wind didn't, it's not the sole cause of it. Um, There were other factors in American culture and history that caused that whitewashing of the Confederate flag, but Gone with the Wind was a major variable in that process of whitewashing. The popularity of Gone with the Wind was. So I've been talking to Sarah Churchwell. We've been talking about her book, The Wrath to Come. Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells, which is out in the UK from Head of Zeus Books. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you very much, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.